This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. No my Heidi my. Welcome to Cult Chat, the podcast where we talk about control, coercion, and all things cultish. I'm Dr. Caroline Ansley. I'm a medical doctor. As a child, I lived at the notorious Centrepoint community, and now I run a website that advocates for former Centrepoint children. I'm Liz Gregory, and I lead the Gloryvale Leavers Support Trust. I've spent the last decade helping people exit Gloryvale and journeying with them and building new lives. I'm Lindy Jacob. I'm a former member of the Exclusive Brethren, and I'm part of the Olive Leaf Network, an initiative that supports people leaving high-demand religious groups. Come with us as we unpack the cult playbook, talk to leavers and experts of coercive and controlling groups, and call for Kiwis to cult-proof their lives. Join us as we traverse the cultiverse. A warning, this podcast contains references to subjects and discussions which may be difficult for some people to hear. Please take care of yourselves and your whanau when listening. All right, hello to all you Cultiverse travellers out there. Welcome back to Cult Chat for today's really special bonus episode. It's so nice to be with you all again. And it's nice to to be with um, Liz today. Unfortunately, Lindy hasn't been able to come today, so it's just me and Liz today. What have you been up to, Liz? Nice to be here with you, Kaz. Yeah. If you could see me, you would see that I had like white particulate matter all over my face because I've been out with my new paint spray gun. We mm-hmm. love to renovate, and um, we've been working on a new portion of our house. And so I've been busy with that, breathing in the fumes. So mm. hopefully, yeah, your brain, mm, um, got... your brain on, you know, yeah, full power today. That's what, that's what we need to hope for. But you know, when you get this, like, like these little fine dust of paint sprinkles all over, like your glasses, your face, your eyelashes. So yeah, yeah. there'll be a big clean up job to do. Oh, so okay, lucky you. I'm glad you're able what to have attend. You been... Yeah. What about you? I um, phew, I've just come from a morning in general practice, actually. So um, uh, it's pretty pretty busy one this morning, actually. So I um, it's always a challenge to turn off from uh, mm. from that and turn on oh. to the next phase. Um, but tonight oh. um, I've got to pack the house up, not the house up, but packed the car up to go away skiing. Me and um, my boys are going skiing for the weekend. Yeah. Nice. Okay. So yeah. you'll be in the white as well. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> That's great. Actually, you're just talking there about turning the mind off, and it's really amazing. I actually deliberately only work, you know, Monday to Thursday, technically. <laughs> I pretend that I actually have Fridays off, and the idea of it is to dump things that are churning around in my mind. Often when you're working with people and problems, mm. um, I find I need to drop that out, and that actually gives me the ability to have Saturday where we can have a day at home and that I feel like um, my mind um, has some clarity. And then obviously our Sundays are fantastic, busy. Um, oh, chat around with all, your, all your people. Friends, yes, and then back into it Monday. So um, I think it's oh, important God. that you have these opportunities to clear the head. Well, I um, I 
hopefully for most of winter will be clearing my head while uh, whizzing backwards and forwards down the ski slope. We are members of a ski club in the Craigieburn Ski Range called Broken River Ski Club and there's nothing really like it, I think. Uh, anywhere else in the world, there's a few club fields um, in the rest of Canterbury, but it's, uh, imagine a tennis club, but with skis and snow, and uh, it's a bit like that. Yeah. So. Frightening. Frightening. <laughs> Last time I went skiing, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, I think I fell over. Just a normal fall over, but sort of, you know, did something to my meniscus tendon, and I thought, that wasn't it wasn't worth it. The weeks and weeks and months of recovery <laughs> weren't worth it for the little bit of fun I certainly did have, but <sighs> maybe I'll get brave. Yeah, yeah. Uh, don't come up to our field. <laughs> it's um, We step up from the average uh, commercial okay. ski field. Yeah, you have to actually walk up to the top with your skis before you oh, get no, going. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's only for the, oh, yeah, the no. truly committed. Um, okay. Anyway, like we, we need to get on to why we're here today, Liz. And um, I'm pretty excited about the episode that we've got for you all today, Hot uh, into the airways, we have the legal team who are standing up to the Gloryville Christian community. Liz has taken us right into their heads and has dug out some of the complexity around the girls' employment case, which started in August at the end of last year in Christchurch and then kind of rolled to a completion in March, just just mm. gone. And the ruling, which was a win, was announced on the 13th of July. Uh, not everyone knows about Glory Vale, though if they listened to last week's episode, why isn't anything anyone doing anything, I think they might have a better understanding. But for listeners who might not know about Glory Vale, could you give us a little overview of the case and why it was so important, Liz? Uh, yes, happy to do that. So Glory Vale being the isolated group on the west coast of New Zealand, 550 people, and they had been running a system of labour, uh, child labour, really, for yeah, much of its existence, up to 50 years. However, last year uh, there was a challenge to the status of the workers there. Some of the leavers wanted to be recognised as employees rather than volunteers. And Gloraval always stated to government departments they were volunteers and the government departments believed them and so they wouldn't exercise their powers to offer employment protection. So after the boys won that case, the girls took a case and said, well, we were also um, clearly employees. We weren't working for commercial businesses, but boy, we were working and we were working mm. hard. And so the six uh, female plaintiffs in the Key to understanding this case is the first defendants was actually the Crown. It was the Attorney General was sued by leavers because of this failure of the government to do their job. Mm -hmm. So it really was the Labour Inspectorate or the Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment who who were the first defendants in the case and Gloravale community themselves, the second defendants. So a really interesting case. Mm. Um, the judge needed to split it up into different portions. So firstly, were they employees? You, you can't go on and sue the government for their failure to do a job if you can't establish that they actually needed to do their job. Mm. So this was part one. Mm. Were the people working at Gloravale actually not volunteers but more likely to be employees, in which case they were exploited employees. Yeah. So uh, you, and so, so that was the weeks a, and weeks. And it's been established that they were that's employees, not so volunteers. Far. So that's the whole point of this particular ruling. Um, so that's why what does, this one's done. Why does the ruling in this case, that they were employees, not volunteers, why does it matter? 
Oh, it matters because if you've got a system of forced labour and or a system of servitude, these things are illegal in New Zealand. And so the ruling was important for um, protection for those um, children still working in Gloraval who were being used in an adult capacity to work uh, for the community under, you know, un- under duress. And then it matters because the people who grew up with that and have been harmed and injured and, and affected, even in a mental sense, but also physically, can have acknowledgement that actually they deserved better, they deserved protections, and they have been impacted. So there is, uh, there will be an opportunity for uh, recompense mm. for this for this wrongdoing. So really it's acknowledgement mm. and it's an encouragement for the government to now do their job properly mm. and to mm. ensure that people are protected. So a really smart um, way to get the government's action is to sue them, which I never really had cottoned on to was a valid Mm. way to do things. But mm. the legal team are very clever. Wow. Well, that that's really great. Thanks for that summary. Um, uh, before we hit play and settle into um, listening to your interview, um, I think we should just point out that at times the audio does get a little bit glitchy. Liz was having some difficulties with her Wi-Fi, for the, so the sound quality isn't as good as we would like it. Um, with that in mind, let's hear the interview. Today I'm delighted to be joined by three men who are part of the legal team supporting Gloria Vale Levers. We're going to have a chat with Brian Henry, Dennis Gates and Steve Patterson about the recent win in the Employment Court for the ex-Gloria Vale girls who spent their lives cooking, cleaning and sewing. We'll find out how the team came together, we'll have a chat about the ruling, the implications and the future. Kick back, enjoy this episode of Cult Chat. Welcome, gentlemen. It's wonderful to have you on the show here today. Looking forward to um, hearing your insights about the ruling. It's been quite a ride to get to this point. Um, Brian, can we start with you? You've taken on some pretty high-profile New Zealand cases. Uh, The Wine Box would be one, Susan Couch with the RSA, Killings would be another. And here you are right at the end of your career, and you're trying to help people who have left a cult thousands of kilometres from your home. Um, how did you feel when you read the judge's comments that these girls were, in fact, employees and they weren't volunteers working for a big, happy family at Gloria Vale? Oh, it's just she got it, full stop. It was absolute delight to read. Um, she understood what we were trying to show through the 10 weeks of evidence and it's just very gratifying when you reach the end of a case of that length of time and you actually have a judicial officer who has really, in our view, understood exactly what our plaintiffs were trying to explain to the world. It's a great judgment. It was a great judgment. Um, Dennis, you always sort of come across as more the background, sort of quite a quiet guy, but you were quite out and loud on TV just last week on the news. There was a bit of emotion there bubbling under the surface. Can you tell us about your feelings at the time of the judgment and then the processing that you've done uh, post-judgment? Oh, initial reaction, uh, delighted, particularly when we heard the reaction from uh, the woman when they were told that that spoke volumes for what it meant to them and, and and to us, I believe. And what's the second part, Liz? Um, just talking about since then, you've had a couple of weeks to sort of percolate on it and um, there seems to be a bit of, you know, anger and angst. There's just always that upset when you 
think about something massive like that and then think about all the years this has been happening and what's going to happen from now. Yeah, okay. On on that, I'll pick up from where I um, left off with that interview on TV3 that the bureaucrats have done nothing. They're still doing nothing. And there's, there's an analogy that I thought of um, just in the last few days. When, when you leave Christchurch and you drive across to um, Greymouth, you go past uh, the Christchurch men's prison. So that's an isolated community. Mm-hmm. And that, is, that isolated community has a farm on it and then the nature of a piggery. And you can see the piggery and you can see the sows in their little huts. If that piggery was not run properly, if it wasn't done in compliance with the law and the animals were ill-treated, maltreated, um, not fed properly, not housed, you would have protesters in there, you'd have bureaucrats in there all over the place. Mm-hmm. With Glory Vale, it's not visible. It's not out in the open. Mm-hmm. The bureaucrats are too um, reluctant, I'll put it that way, in their favour to go out there and actually see what is happening, exercise their powers, and bring the rule of law to apply to those citizens of New Zealand. Yeah. And I just can't understand why they won't do it. They can initiate stuff. They don't have to wait for us to um, bring proceedings to conclude our proceedings. They can initiate action. They can. So it's sort of like the highs and lows. This is just these long-running cases. And I wonder if Steve wants to make a comment about that. Steve, you've got a, a background in human rights, and so there must be a part of you that feels really um, connected to this glory of our story. You've sort of identified a lot of these issues. How did it feel being part of a team that exposed a lot of the concern about this dysfunctional community? Oh, look, it was a great team, you know, Um yeah, Brian's brilliance and and getting these results through. Um, but look, it's a whole team, you know, from Janina doing a lot of the mm-hmm. investigative work. Um, Dennis was a, a substantial experience in uh, running a law firm and just understanding all a lot of background documentation. And like collectively, we had the skills to do it. And and I guess mm. the, the results speak for itself. And I think one of the things you mentioned, Brian or Dennis. Uh, to see the girls' reactions, wasn't it just um, an incredible moment? Um, I happened to be there when, um, you know, the, the ruling came through for them and it, it, it went live. And, you know, there were these tears, there was disbelief, um, there were shouts and screams and jumps and hugs. And and I think it was Pearl said to, to be believed, to be heard, to be validated. There's something really incredibly powerful and empowering. In, in what you did there. I've always struck it a little odd. Uh, Dennis, you're up north, and Brian, you're up north somewhere else, and Steve's in Christchurch, and, and um, Janina investigator down here in Timaru, and Gloria Val is on the west coast, and this group of people have somehow come together and converged. Everyone's got different backgrounds. What is it about this case that pulls together so many people who would not normally hang out together? Well, Dennis and I do hang out together a lot, but he turned up with a file and he said to me, are you going to hate me for this? And I had a look at it. I don't hate him, but, yeah, you can't walk away. And for me, probably the hardest moment in the trial was when we went on The View and we saw these little wee girls in blue dresses for life. And I, I find that the most... Uh, striking, difficult um, memory. And you just 
can't understand. And, you know, Dennis's example about driving across the plains is just mm. so right. You can't understand what is it about these little girls mm. that the establishment doesn't want to protect them. Yeah, I, 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 like Dennis, sit there and I just can't understand how someone can go to Glory Vale. As Dennis said, they've got all these powers and they can exercise them. Mm-hmm. To me, and it's harsh to say it, they didn't exercise their brains or their humanity. And mm-hmm. I am that harsh in my view of these officials because, yeah, you walk into the place, it hits you between the eyes. Mm-hmm. You read what we believe, and the judge made a wonderful comment in the Courage case. Yeah, a cursory reading of what we believe sets off alarm bells. Mm-hmm. That would be one of the most classic understatements of a judicial officer in my 50-year career. Absolutely sledgehammers you. It does. And what we believe is their foundational document. And if you read it, you, you can tell how they operate and what they believe, that they wrote it down for everyone to look at. It's always astounded me too. And, you know, managing the Glory of Our Leavers Support Trust, we've seen the downstream impacts of people who have been affected by Glory Vale, and, it, and it's quite devastating. And it's um, coming up 10 years now, being involved in this work. But I can say a big thank you from, from our side and perspective. The fact you've joined with Leavers to, to go into the litigation area, it's an area that our trust can't, can't sort of get involved in. We're, we're helping people resettle and we try and wave our flag and get into advocacy. But really, the real uh, promise for future change has come through the court system. So I know there's a massive thanks uh, there from us. Can we just um, rewind a bit? Brian, you talked about Dennis brought you a file. Can we have a bit of a background on how this came to court? I understand it was it was at least three years ago um, at the beginning of a civil lawsuit. So can we have a wee intro there? Well, it started actually five years ago, Liz, because I... I saw the file at a law firm in Christchurch. Actually, it was five years ago, probably this month. Mm-hmm. And and I looked at it, and I think I then approached Dennis and said, you know, uh, reading the transcript of what then beca- now became one of a plaintiff in another proceedings before the courts, John Reedy, uh, mm-hmm. this had all the hallmarks of slavery. And I said, Dennis, we have to do something. And I think Dennis said, I know, just the man. So it sort of oh. morphed from there. Fantastic. And I do recall, Steve, you sort of coming down to get a bit more of a picture of Gloria Vale and in a sense, and that yeah, well, we were Dan, able to introduce you to people. Yeah, Dennis, Dennis came down and mm. I met him at the airport and we we uh, went on our first clandestine visit, if we could call it that. Um, somebody connected with Gloria Vale took us on a, on a tour through and we, Dennis and I, we both observed different things, interesting things. Um, and... Um, but, I mean, Dennis can say, Dennis, what, what, what was the classic line you said to me when we left about this place being built on? Just on that, you, we were travelling back, Steve, um, and you asked me what I thought of the place, and I just made the comment, it's built on deceit. Mm. And that, that was based on the fact that what you see is not what you get. Mm. And that was brought through by three sort of very insignificant things in themselves, but cumulatively, it gave me that impression. And I, I haven't seen anything since to change my assessment of how these guys operate. Yeah, that's so insightful. And, it, and you're right, sitting in court, I was there for all of those days, um, you know, watching and, and taking notes. And I, I just found it incredible, the things that were being said and yet the things I knew were happening that very week at Gloria Vale. 
there is this incredible, uh, incredibly deceptive undercurrent, which is very common in high control, high cost cult like groups that they run on a lot of a lot of that deception. Um, I wonder, so you've got that opportunity there, Steve, where you realise there's something happening, there's something wrong. How does it go from a visit into Gloria Vale to an employment court win? It was a bit of a journey there. Oh, well, there's, for everybody involved, there's years of hard work um, and pain. Mm. You know, the pain is hearing and doing interviews with people inside Gloria Vale. I think I interviewed more people inside than out. Um, and hearing their stories... Uh, you know, I, you see things. Um, I interviewed a guy who jumped into the bush. Luckily, I got some photos. A middle-aged man in a management position jumping into the bush in absolute fear and terror of one of the leaders who might be approaching on a car. And, you know, those images are burned into your mind, seared into your mind, because, you know, these people are living in terror of others. Mm. And you go, how does this be in New Zealand? And you know, sort of fast forward to the, the last trial, one of the plaintiffs, I believe it was, or certainly it might have been a witness, they gave evidence that the children they gave birth to belonged to another. Mm. And understanding that a mother is handing over, effectively handing over her children to the, the control of others in New Zealand, you know, that's, that's a shocking admission, a shocking indictment on our country that that can actually occur here. Yeah, deeply disturbing. I recall um, September 2020, that's when the first sort of legal action was launched uh, by way of a civil suit, and it was an attempt through the court to remove the trustees. And again, it shone a light, the media were busy, and two young fellas, very brave young men, came out of the bush and did an interview which made its way to TV3. And it was at that point there were questions raised because they were talking about working long, grueling hours, dangerous conditions, and talked about power and control. Um, that then led to TV3 News Hub going and doing a bit of an in-depth investigation uh, into what happened to the Labour Inspectorate. And it was there that we found out that there was this report done, you know, 2017-18 after the charity services had been in, and it was a paper paper report that quietly did this report, basically said, no, I don't think their employees and buried it. And, and for years I'd wondered why you know, the Labour Inspectorate hadn't gone in there. And I think it was at that point I recall there being a resurgence of interest, leavers coming forward saying, um, well, I don't think I was a volunteer. I believed I was an exploited employer. I believe I was a slave, some of them said. So you've got this um, wave of media and then it goes quiet for nine months. And the Labour Inspectorate did what they called a, a pre-investigation. And they did let us know, and we assisted finding leavers who would talk to them. They came back. It took them nine months. They came back at the end of nine months and said, mm, on the balance of probabilities, we think they probably were uh, volunteers or not employees, and so we will not be investigating. So they didn't actually conduct the investigation. And I think it was at that point I was a bit upset and angry. <laughs> and, uh, Brian, we may have had a phone call um, around some other issues at that time. And I just recall you saying, um, why don't you send me, you know, send me some information. And at that point, yeah, you guys have, have run. Um, the levers have jumped on board. What did you see at that point, Brian, that concerned you? Oh, that, that, that whole report is a joke. Um, it it is premised on a, an investigation, and all I can say is, well, they can't have read what we believe. They say they've been through all the documents and the structure. The structure is 
exactly what Dennis and I worked on in the wine box. Mm. And, and, and I hate to say it, but when you see them, they seem complex, but when you actually understand them, they're very simple. And Dennis talked about built on deceit. What we described in the trial was it, it, it's a mirror. You look in the mirror and you see what they want you to see, but you look past the mirror and you see the reality. And that is the whole nature of the structure. It is a mirror to show the world whatever they want the world to see, but it's stopping you seeing the reality. And that's – it was just so obvious when you read that report that it couldn't stand on its feet. Mm. It was basically crap. Mm. That's a very special legal term, crap. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I remember reading the report and there were aspects of it where I thought, oh, yeah, the Labor Inspectorate have sort of fully understood and synthesised the different views, the different narratives, which were extreme, of course, the Leavers versus current members. But their conclusion was just absurd and, and completely wrong, as has been evidenced by the Employment Court. So that's great. Now, look, a precursor to this girl's case was a boy's case, uh, beginning of last year, 2022, judgment in May um, 2022. We're a year later. Um, can you tell us a bit about the boy's case and, and how that led to this one? Well, the, the boy's case was a more classic employment case. They were working apparently for companies, but when you actually go through the structure again, they're mirrors, they're not companies. But it was a more conventional type issue to get this in front of the court and find out a lot more what was going on. Now, we had one servant give evidence and he fell to bits very quickly. We had a brief from another, he's a servant or shepherd, can't remember which, and he just never gave evidence. So we mm. ended up more with a hole than with an actual reality. And the next step is then to go to the woman. Now, the woman's mm. position was very much what they said was domestic and you didn't have a classic employment situation. So we had a big hurdle to get over with the evidence to show that this really is an industrial complex. They really mm. were an industrial support team. They were not a um, family mm. domestic situation. It's a bit like being on an oil rig, totally isolated, and they're the, they're the domestic cooking, cleaning, scrubbing, washing the clothes team. And that's what the judge saw, and that's what the judge has held actually happens. She did. She made a comment that she didn't accept that there was this notional big family. Doraval were trying to sell it that we're cooking, cleaning uh, for our family. Our big family of 600, but it's our family. Um, look, another defence they tried to use, and we might ask Steve about this, they tried to defend it on the basis of some religious freedom concepts. How, how do you feel about that, Steve? Yeah, I mean, they, they did uh, argue that, and they brought in cases, 100-year-old cases, I think, um, and, and from abroad, like in the US with the Hutterites and, and some of the other groups there. Uh, but, look, the judge found that, um, yeah, there is a right to uh, freedom of religion and belief and the right to manifest that belief, but it is still subject to the laws of the land, and that includes employment laws. So you can't just, you know... Uh, Manifesting religious belief is it's not an unfettered right. It's not, it can't go infinitum. You know, there are limits. There are justifiable limits. And, and employment laws are some of those limits. Yeah, the situation with religion is religion's the motivation. 
but what you do is the intention, and in this case the motivation may be religious, but the intention was to trap and keep children, child labour and subservient women involved. That's not religion, that's intention. And as mm. Steve said, that's employment. Religion is only the motivation. Brilliant, because Dr Norris, she was a forensic psychiatrist who came to um, give, give witness and um, she spoke about, in her opinion, Glorival looks like it has the hallmarks of a classic socially entrapped society. And I think that's a, a, fair, um, a fair summary of it. Um, Dennis, how did you feel sitting um, through this court case? You know it's about employment, but all of this dirty laundry, for want of a better word, is being aired about Gloraval and all other aspects of life. Why was it that the judge allowed things that seemed to be relatively unlinked to employment to, to play a part? Oh, I think it comes back to Brian's point that oppressive conduct, um, sexual abuse, all that type of stuff does come within the employment realm. So she, she did allow it. She was very generous in allowing it. Um, and to a certain extent, it was almost a quasi-inquiry um, into Gloria. Um, but I, I noticed that mm. in her judgment... Yeah. A lot of the facts are sort of summarised. They're not. Um, they're not features of the judgment. She has. She has honed in on the, the um, specifics that Brian was arguing. Yeah, the question of employment is a look at the entire circumstances they live in. Mm -hmm. Sexual abuse is a big part of employment. So, if you're under power and control, sexually abused, mm -hmm. that that is in fact what employment. It's probably about 25, 30% of their court business these days because uh, wow. work, work sexual predation is a huge problem in this country. Glory Vale is a very extreme example of it. But, yeah, Dennis is right. It opens a very wide factual purview. And then we had to look at the structure because who the employer is, you have to go through how they've got mm -hmm. their power and control set up. So... Um, yeah, as Dennis says, it, it sort of felt like an inquiry, but in actual fact, it was necessary for her to determine the relationship and necessary for her to determine who is the employer. And um, we we were able and we kept jockeying in our submissions to always keep ourselves relevant going into quite a lot of stuff, which... Uh, um, you know, some people might think was a bit too far, but as far as I was concerned, it was vital. Brilliant. So I've got a quote here from the judge, and, and it was around the question of why did the plaintiffs work? So uh, obviously in an employment case, you've got Section 6, which gives employment you know, protection for people in New Zealand, Section 6 of the Employment Relations Act. And part of one of the pillars of employment or to get through that gateway, you need to show that there was um, there's some higher reward, that someone is working for something. And I, and I love the judge's comment. She says, I've reached the conclusion based on the evidence before the court that the plaintiffs did their work on the teams, which admittedly benefited the community, because that is what they were told to do. What each of them had been trained to, birth, to accept from birth and the consequences of not doing what was expected, namely falling out of unity, were dire and well-known. Exclusion from the community, from all that was familiar, from family and friends, and into a world they know little about, were ill-equipped to navigate and had been taught to fear. And I think that's just a, a huge summary of why all of the other features of people's lives, you know, 
needed to come before the court and be exposed so the judge could could make that call. And I think you're right, power and control, are they the key words here? That's right. Yeah. There are two other words I'd love to have a discussion on, and the judge doesn't actually use them, particularly not out of her own words, but she does pop in some quotes from others. Those two words are slavery and servitude. So if you're looking at people who are basically on a circle of life, uh, born into well-established norms in this community, they grow up, uh, it's, it's looking and sounding a bit like some sort of forced labour, servitude, slavery. Steve, this is something of particular interest to you. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, she doesn't use the word servitude. She doesn't have a finding of servitude. But certainly, in my opinion, her judgments would support such a finding. Uh, you know, like the three pillars I look at for servitude you know, is that um, the unfree recruitment, how do they come to be there? And of course, we all know for our plaintiffs and their witnesses, they were born there. That's quite different from some of the shepherds who gave evidence who chose to join there at middle age and make an informed choice. And we're able to look at alternatives in life and society and choose to go there. And, of course, the second pillar is the nature of their work and the evidence that came out is they worked hard, very, very hard, and that was Glorvale's own admission from their council. So when you look at how they worked, the dangerousness of their working conditions, um, the degrading living conditions, you know, on that view, we saw hostels that were dark, um, dungy, um, Mm. overcrowded, and... When you look at that, no wages, no cell phones for a lot of them, no no independent transport, um, one week off a year, uh, long hours. You start to look at exploitative work and living conditions. And then the final pillar I look at is, well, how easy is it to leave that? And, of course, Glorival mm. argue, well, we've got plaintiffs, so clearly you could leave. But <laughs> yes. at, at what cost? And That's right. Um, when Dennis and I first went there, what struck us was this is this is in the middle of nowhere. It's gravel mm. roads, maybe one, two hours from Greymouth. Uh, it's not like there's a bus or public transport running past. Um, then, of course, the biggest barrier is this is the third, fourth generation bred into mm. them that you leave, you go to mm. hell. And um, mm. the psychological change that that yeah. does to people living there, uh, loss of family, loss of friends. This is all of their family. It's not just one or two members. It's basically all of them, apart from one or two who have left. So how easy is it to leave? It's very, very hard. And so I look at that and go, uh, this has the hallmarks of servitude for these women. Excellent. So the judge has declared they were employees, but the Crown took an opportunity, the government, to um, you know, present to the New Zealand public that they are doing something. Uh, they mentioned and reminded Howard Temple that there is an active investigation by the police into slavery, servitude and forced labour in the Glorival context. Now, I, um, I'm not sure where that um What's, what, where it's up to. I'm guessing they were waiting for their judgment from the employment court to perhaps uh, proceed further. Um, is this a police issue? We, we can't talk about that. We can only talk about the civil case and use the civil definition of slavery. Mm-hmm. What the police are doing, uh, we'll leave that to them. All I'll say is they've got a very difficult job because this is a community trained from birth not to cooperate with authorities. We know in the recent years they are 
very successfully prosecuting, but again, suppression orders stop us talking about that. Mm -hmm. All we can say is uh, we'll wait and see. Yeah, so I'm looking at some of the comments from the ruling and I thought if I can read some of them out and then just get a quick um, comment. You were talking about them working hard, very, very hard from their own council and it was shown that there was more than 11,000 meals and 17,000 items in the laundry wash each week. And you're looking at it's of single girls doing this work. And the judge says, the evidence clearly established the work required to produce these outcomes was unrelenting, grinding, hard, physically and psychologically demanding. These are pretty strong words. Deservedly. Yeah. Yeah. And so you get this no dispute that they worked very, very hard. The evidence wasn't challenged, was it? It was both sides, uh, current members and the leavers attested to this. The difference is that you have the people in Gloria Vale saying, we believe it's good to work hard, it's good to suffer, it's good to struggle, it um, crucifies the flesh, it helps us um, gather up our muscles for um, when the persecution comes. And I've always just found it curious that their persecution seems to be coming from their own leaders themselves. They seem to be the ones creating conditions for hard work and hard labour on their own people. Yeah, when, when, when the trial started, we go first and we call our witnesses and they started cross-examining our witnesses. They weren't sitting in the, oh, it's hard, hard work, blah, 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 because the briefs they filed were, it's all love and peace and beads, blah, blah, blah. They started getting some pretty hard answers in cross-examination. And I remember particularly Rose, um, who is a quiet, reasonably uh, retiring character, and when the cross-examination started on her, and remember, this is a top Dean Queen's Council and our King's Council, and she just stood up and had no nonsense about what they were doing. It was really after her evidence that they suddenly were saying, oh, yes, we're not disputing you worked hard, very, very hard, because it started to become clear, as you said, 11,000 meals, hundreds of clothing. It just started to fall to bits on their council. And it was, I think, a dawning for a lot of people that what these women do and, and the language used, it is totally deserved. And and I think, Steve, in your trips, because Steve was the sort of the undercover man through the night <laughs> under bridges interviewing people, you started to bring out a real flavour of the reality of just how hard and how, how, how would we put it, Steve, how depressed they were or suppressed they were as to oh. understanding well, and thinking well, in the world. I mean, Brian, stuff? the best one I look at is uh, the witnesses, the dullness in their eyes of the defendant's mm -hmm. witnesses in contrast mm -hmm. to the light that was glowing in our plaintiff, in our witnesses' eyes. It's like a big West Coast fog that's just descended on that place and stayed there. And yeah. they're exhausted. Yeah, they're exhausted. They're yeah, devoid of life. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's it. And for them, this is all they've ever known. So for them, within that, they would have, I'm happy in this, not recognising, nothing to compare it to. I remember Virginia Courage saying, oh, when I was in there, I would have said, yeah, I loved my life here and I was happy. She said it wasn't like I had any other option. I, I kind of had to say it. We were told to. And at the end of the day, you can still wake up in dire circumstances and make a choice. And Dove Love said it. She makes a choice to be happy. 
So the concept of happiness is not something important in Gloria Vale. In fact, if you want to have happiness in your job, they would say that's sinful and they might move you on somewhere else. They don't want that. It's not a value for them. Uh, their values are obedience, unity, and just uh, submission, doing doing what you're told. Living someone else's dream. Well, uh, I actually, actually there's another value there, um, suffering. I actually think that they uh, elevate oh, suffering yes. as some sort of virtue. Yeah. And that helps, you know, so if, you, if you're tempted to complain, well, suffering is a virtue. So, you know, shut up and be quiet and get on with it. Definitely. I think yeah, it was but- Rapture Stanchu mentioned that in court and she said if people could just understand that you know it, it yeah basically it's good it's good for us to suffer that if they understood our way of thinking yeah we don't think this is a problem you've got, got to be a bit careful when you look at the respondents evidence because all of the all of the apart from some of the older ones weren't full-time on the teams we never saw one witness who was a single girl working full-time on the teams they always had things they did that got away from it. And most of our plaintiffs worked full-time on the teams and they had no relief. They had no go off and teach for a little while or play with the little kids, blah, blah, blah. They just ground it out early in the morning to late at night. And we we had this evidence and cross-examination, oh, you're exaggerating, you weren't starting this early. And there we showed that movie that Dove Love made and there was the clock. Brilliant going it's exactly what the plaintiffs were saying and and it it, to me is just amazing that you know we get accused our witnesses got accused of the fact they're exaggerating Uh, Mm. it was to me the other way around because everything we got that was empirical showed our girls were telling the truth and the view to me that just put it beyond doubt you see, what I've noticed with Gloraval leavers and what they've told me, they said that when you're in there and you're asked by an outsider, like a police or a, an investigator, it's your job to promote a glossy view of the community so that there's no sort of indications things are wrong. But it's worse than that. Everything you view is through is through that lens. So you don't actually have, a uh, firstly, an opportunity to be honest because of the consequences for you. Secondly, you don't have the perspective to be honest. And thirdly, if there's a one-off event, someone in Gloraval will say, oh, that's just a one-off event. Uh, And so they won't see it as valid. Unless it happened every day of their 30 years of life, they don't think it's a pattern. They live with a utopian forward view of what the community could look like, should look like, if it was heaven on earth now. That's what they presented in their evidence and their witness statements, in my opinion. It was the glossy view of what a perfect Gloraval could look like but it wasn't the reality of what actually happened. I think the Labour Inspectorate struggled with that. They admitted that when they investigated these differing narratives, which is why the court psychiatrist was brought in to help understand what might happen in these groups, high-cost groups. But they they lived in a tunnel where they've Mm. got a certain amount of concept and perspective, Mm -hmm. and it's almost like, um, and I think at one stage, Dennis, we talked about this, it's like a deaf person. They can't hear everything but what they're doing or saying. Yeah. And they actually have no tools in their brains to put any other picture against the one that they see. Mm. And they believe they're worldly mm. just because they've been to Christchurch. What was that story, Dennis? They've 
the girl gave evidence on. Well, she gave evidence about how she knew about the outside world, if you recall, and she'd yes. been to Greymouth, she'd been to Hokitika, she'd been on the fruit-picking trip to... Um, Nelson. Nelson. Yeah. And she'd oh, been to Christchurch. Machuanka, was it? Yeah. Nelson, Machuanka. Yeah. The um, counsel for the uh, assisting the court put the question to her, what's the longest you've spent in Christchurch? And she quite proudly answers, two days. And he follows that up with, and when was that? This week. To which yeah. mirth was suppressed throughout the court because it was yes. a bit of um, decorum in the court. You don't laugh at witnesses, but it was difficult to uh, suppress that. Yeah, and I've actually thought a lot on that one. And again, it was it's the utopian view that, that, that we live this and we have this freedom. It's not the reality, but they can't see it. They actually think. They, they, they just think like that. Yeah. That's the difficulty there's, of being born in a community like this. There's another blind spot as well. That's the rest of New Zealand. They can't believe that we have a community such as Glory Vale within New Zealand. And that applies to the bureaucrats. And they're not trained to look at it and recognise it for what it is. That's a blind spot. What I find interesting is we've yeah. got two other previous examples. We've got Centrepoint. We've got <laughs> Camp David. So what is it about history that we're unable to learn from? I ask that a lot. Centrepoint, yeah, Camp David. I think that's a reason why we're involved in this podcast, Cult Chat. We're actually trying to have a conversation, not just about um, Glory Vale specifically. Um, we're trying to go another level higher to say there are other harmful groups out there who have and you know have some similar um, ideologies or patterns of behaviour, the shunning, the shaming. Um, and so we need to have these bigger conversations. We actually need to be encouraging people now to start to um, direct your study energies towards um, cultic groups, high control groups. We need uh, a lot of psychiatrists, psychologists, counsellors, therapists, people who understand the dynamics of these groups. We need professionals working with every government agency, Control and coercion exists throughout our country in many ways, but I feel like we're ill-equipped to recognise it, let alone deal with it. Um, so, yeah, for me, Dr Norris's report was was an utter key. She talks about the coercive aspects and how can someone living in a community like Gloravale who doesn't actually have a real choice, how are they able to say they have a real choice? Because when you've got coercion at play, they say the choice is not a real choice. I think uh, Virginia Courage, do you remember her saying, it's not a choice. I would call it a risk assessment. It's not a choice to leave. The leaders keep saying it's a choice to leave. See, people have done it. No, no, it's a risk assessment. And I know how hard it was for some of those people to come out. They did not just leave. Some were thrown, some were pulled and dragged out and rescued out of there. Some were taken out by police. There was, there was you know, harm, issues around suicide and child protection. There's nothing simple about how people leave Glorabelle. There is nothing easy about it. Uh, Dennis, I think, has hit the nail on the head. On the one side, you've got the people in there, and they have absolutely no perception of our society, what's right, what's wrong, and and what is a reasonable expectation Mm -hmm. for a human being. So they come to the witness box. They're not lying. They just simply are totally ignorant and don't know, and they'd hate being told they're ignorant. On the other hand, yes, they do. you've got officials coming in, and particularly at a senior level, they can't conceive what they're seeing 
they haven't seen the, the hard rub of um, basically the pigsty that Dennis talked about on the Canterbury Plains. And they walk in there and they actually don't want to see it. They don't no. want to think it. They don't want to find it. And they want to think this is this utopian, Christian, everybody's happy society. Mm. And it is a real problem in our bureaucracy that they can't see reality. So I've, I've got a question. If, if that's the case, Brian, you know, the media has been reporting on quite tragic stories coming out of Gloria for over a decade now. So it's almost like that, that, that narrative has been discarded by public officials in favour of the one yeah, before their eyes. They, they just don't want to watch it. They don't want to conceive it. And they literally become blind to what's going on. Now, I've, I've seen this in lots of different trials over the years, particularly with people involved in, in you know, more criminal-type situations. They actually can't conceive that actually what they're doing is the reality of what they're doing. They don't see it's wrong. They justify it in their heads and they walk on. It, it's, it's a human condition. But here, it's little children. There's another That's aspect of that. Me. There's another aspect of that as well, Steve. That when you get those news stories, they're focused on individuals and their particular circumstances and their particular story. What the bureaucrats can't seem to comprehend is that this mm. is institutionalized. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's really hard to paint a picture of an institution that would do this to its own people, in that the lifestyle yes. that's um, imposed on the residents of Gloryvale. It's outlandish, yeah. and yet, you know, we, it is. we get right. messages of we get messages of support, and we've we've had them from across the board. We had one recently um, from a, a senior member of our uh, political elite, saying, "Good on you, go go to it, keep doing it." We 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 all get that across the board. I'm sure mm. you're doing a great mm -hmm. job. Keep doing mm. it. But why is it our why is it our job? Why isn't it um, being picked up by those with the power, the influence, and the tools mm. to actually go in there, enforce mm. the law, and make the changes that are required. That goes right back to your first question, Liz. Mm. That's what he turned up and was saying to me. If we don't do it, nobody's going to do it. Dennis is totally right. And if we hadn't done what we've done, we wouldn't have people near this conversation mm. and we still haven't broken the world open yet. Mm. And we've got, it's actually three judgments we've got now out in the public arena. There's the two employment court ones and there's the Chief Justice of the Court of Appeal right back in 1996. Mm. And they're all in the light of day mm -hmm. and we're having this conversation. Now, isn't that the power of your litigation, though? And the, uh, our listeners might like to know that you didn't just take Gloryvale to the Employment Court. You actually took the government <laughs> to the Employment Court for their failure to recognise employment and to give protection to the people in Gloryvale. That was a really smart way of hauling them to account, wasn't it? Yeah, the, 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 the litigation is against the government department responsible, and you're quite right. We had to establish mm. that they were employees first. So this is only a preliminary question on both cases. So uh, it's taken quite a long time to get through it. But mm -hmm. this is the hard question 
that had to be answered. And then, then it's now, who do we hold to account? How do we hold them to account? And that's the process we're working through at the moment. But it is absolutely unbelievable to me that the organs of state didn't see something was wrong. And there had to be mm. some law somewhere to do this. But as Dennis said, because he'd seen, I think, your files with all the complaints you'd made, Steve had certainly briefed him up on that. No reaction, no reaction, no reaction. And mm. it actually comes back, and people don't realise, in fact, the power of a trial barrister. And we have got tools we can use through the courts uh, mm -hmm. to start to pull things like this open. We're not the best instrument, but we're the last resort instrument, and, and that's what's happening at the moment. And we will not solve the problems of Gloria Vale, but we will solve the problems with these plaintiffs and some of the kids in there. So looking at just the impact of the ruling, I mean, you mentioned part one was were they employees? Yes, they are. So now you're waiting for a judgment from the judge to say who the employer is, and that's obviously, I guess, so that you can find out who needs to what, give recompense. That, that, that'll be another hearing. That, that mm -hmm. determines the employment relationship. But once we mm -hmm. know their employees, which we now know, subject to any appeal that they say they're doing, um, and we know who the employer is, we can then say mm -hmm. to the government departments, well, you know, we've worked that out you should have done that and these are things you missed, you saw and why we think we should hold you to account back to our plaintiffs. So a lot of New Zealand public um, are interested in what this actually means for the six plaintiffs and what does it mean for the girls still working in Grobar? Does this ruling have an impact wider than the six plaintiffs? Uh, it, it will have a ruling in the sense that Gloria Vale will have a big difficulty to argue that others working on the teams are not also employees. Mm -hmm. And it'll be seen as the case that set that. So if you want to dispute it, uh, you can, but you're going to get short shift from the courts for wasting time. But it's technically, it only binds the six plaintiffs in Gloria Vale. There's an interesting side uh, story there, Liz. One of my contacts is a um, senior leader in the union movement. And when we got the decision, I got in touch hmm. with him and said, okay, now you can get your guys in there to bring the benefits of the unions or make the benefits of the unions available to the people of Gloria. Yes. And the response I got back was, oh, I don't think we'd do it because nobody in there would sign up. And to me, it was just another example of, yep. <laughs> oh, not my problem, somebody else can do it, right? It was yes. very, very frustrating because this, this is a, a close friend and I, I yes. he's still a close friend, but, boy, that was frustrating. Yeah. Yeah, it's like the door knocking and, and the doors just keep getting shut and you, and you know you've got everything you need in front of you and this should create change. This should create change. But the day after the judgment, it's been two weeks, the girls are still cooking 11,000 meals and, and, and washing 17,000 garments this week. I mean, Gloriavale's just ticking along like normal. They're a group that won't act unless they literally have their arms screwed right up their back, it appears. Um, how disturbing. I know people in Gloriavale were hoping this would have an impact. Someone with a white horse was going to come in and rescue them from their servitude. Um, it's more complex than that. Well, Liz, what is interesting, though, is the private sector have acted, uh, trying to act mm -hmm. anyway, uh, with uh, Whistler Milk Products and, and the BNZ, 
So yes. whilst the government seems to be asleep at the wheel, um, private sector is getting off their backside and realising they actually have to do something about this. So that's encouraging. Well, they sign up. Yeah, sign up to you know, provisions saying we won't have you know slavery and whatever in our in the supply chain, and then sitting in a little corner of New Zealand producing goods, even goods that are being exported. You have this this problem. Can I come back to um, the decision making chain? Uh, Purity Vella, um, um, one of the shepherds' wives, had this incredible exchange um, in the court. Uh, the question I think might have come from um, the counsel for the court. And the question is, who tells you, or maybe it was you, Brian, who tells you what to think? And she answers, the Bible tells me what to think. And the question was, and who tells you what the Bible says for you to think? And she said, well, I can read it in the Bible. And if I have any questions, I can ask guidance from the leadership to understand it more clearly. And the next question is, but it's the leadership that tells you the interpretation of the Bible, which is what you think, isn't it? And she said, and that's the way God planned it. So as you got down to that logical exchange, Brian, and it was you, um, she's giving some answers, which may have some merit, different people with different religious views. And then she shuts it down and says, yeah, I'm pretty much, I'll get told what to think. And that's how God planned it. It's like a thought-stopping cliche, end of discussion. I can't give any more of an answer than that. Did you find that as you were questioning people, you got that sort of, you finally got there with a number of questions? Well, you had you had to work out what the glory of our speak was, and and I must admit I had a lot of difficulty with it, and the, mm-hmm. the rest of the team seemed to get it better than me whenever we were working through stuff. But when you're on your feet, and you've got a witness in front of you, and and I remember uh, one incident was I said, "Oh, and you go to hell?" No. No. And <laughs> what they thought is you imperiled your soul. And until I got a note from someone saying imperiled your soul, and I came back and said, well, well you're taught it imperiled your soul. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. But they don't know and won't translate that to going to hell. They um, do know to translate it to going to hell, and they know it's what it means, but they, well, they won't do it. Unwilling. But they've got an incredible linguistic ability mm-hmm. to not answer mm-hmm. what you ask them as a normal human being would do. If you saw that clip they played of Howard uh, on the TV show the other night, um, you had to take him a little bit by the mm-hmm. little bit by the little mm-hmm. bit, and then he finally says, oh, well, but that's the way we are. Yeah. So the that's answer is yes, and you got yes. Yes. So I remember Virginia Courage. I mean, we leavers tell us all the time about the draw bell speak recorded or the double speak, the deliberate yeah. intention to deceive. It was yeah. a strategy to stop you getting in trouble in Gloria Vale. So it would go along these lines. Let's say someone smuggled you a telephone and you weren't allowed to have it. It was contraband and you put it in a, um, a drawer by your bedside and a leader pulls you into a meeting and says, have you got a cell phone? That person would say no because they haven't got it on them. They're yep. not about to admit that they've got it in a drawer by their bed. So it's deliberately obscuring. And that happened in the court case a lot. And unless you pick up on their lingo uh, and push them into that corner, there's a lot of deception that, that just gets, they, they get led away um, away with it. And I think probably the court um, picked up on it and the judge and various others, that, that transcript of Zion Pilgrim's meeting with the servants and the shepherds, and he recorded it. And there it was. It was like plain to see in the court. The leaders could not deny that they had said those 
things. They tried to say they had different motives or maybe they didn't say it, but they were told the heart was being wicked, evil. You know, his views were equated to a satanic force that is pitted against the church, working through him. His wife was told to be quiet. What right do you have to speak? I mean, really, it was a brilliant uh, piece of evidence seeing the shepherds in flight. The strange thing is, that was a really mild servants and shepherds meeting. Most leavers admit it, Zion himself admits it. That was pretty easy going. Some of those meetings are pretty harsh. And yet faithful pilgrim just laughed it off when someone suggested they were psychologically damaging. They don't see that the harm, that the judge saw through it. Can I put to you just a couple of other, um, other couple of quotes from the judge um, and have a comment about it? Glorabel tried to downplay their um, role of their document, what we believe. So that's their founding document. They tried to say, no, no, we, we, we don't, oh, we've changed it. We don't really use it. We've got a 10-page version now instead of a 150-page version. Um, everyone knew that that was um, a, a, just another way of Glorabel trying to get away from what was written down about their beliefs. But the judge saw through it. She said, I was not drawn to this aspect of the evidence, the downplaying, It significantly downplayed the importance of what we believe. It was at odds with how the overseeing shepherd himself described the role of the document within the community when questioned about it. I don't accept evidence that suggested otherwise. Can you tell us about the time that Howard had in the stand with you? He sort of seemed to eat out of your hand, Brian. Well, it was interesting time because we spent quite a few days with him. And I honestly wonder if he really understood the consequences in a courtroom of what he was saying. And he, he was actually pretty straight up and down. Yeah, reasonably. But I think he honestly believed that this was totally exculpatory and uh, what he was saying was absolutely killing us in the evidence. And, yeah, the man, I think, has come to believe his own unreality. I think so. Steve, um, another comment on power and control. It said it amply demonstrates the significant power and control wielded by the Glorival leaders, headed by the overseeing shepherd, and the way in which opposing thought or action or falling out of unity was dealt with. And you spoke just before about the terror of falling out of unity. Can you give us a comment on the fact the judge has seen through that? Well, yeah, she's recognised those uh, psychological bonds chains that hold them there. Um, in fact, actually, I think there was a, another judicial officer in the uh, criminal forums that uh, also understood that more recently, uh, dealing with John Reddy. And so, you know, that's that, that's the reality, that this falling out of unity is everything, because that is a one-way ticket to saying goodbye to your mother and father, your siblings, potentially your children, your wife or your husband, uh, your job, you know, all of those things that we take for granted living in freedom. And are those the kinds of issues that could be seen, uh, could be heard in another court, those issues around human rights? How, do, how does that work? The Employment Court obviously has its limitations. Well, the Human Rights Court, you know, primarily deals with uh, alleged breaches under the Human Rights Act, and that's essentially discrimination legislation. So that's not really to do with uh, falling out of unity. Um, mm. Mm. But there's this mix, isn't there, between the whole lifestyle at Doraval. I mean, they don't even believe in human rights. <laughs> uh, and, you, and you've got these these great comments from the judge 
Um, she's she's seen through this social entrapment. I mean, losing your job is there, is there a discrimination issue there? You're losing your job. Some people got thrown out of Gloryvale, lost their job, family, wife, children. Yeah, well, I mean, if, 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 if you lose if you lose your job because of a difference in religious belief, you know, that might be grounds for alleging discrimination on religious belief grounds. Um, mm. Yeah, but Gloryvale likes to think that. Um, their religious freedom has been the thing that's kept them afloat to this point. I'm, I'm wondering if their boat's got a few holes um, going through the bottom their, of it. Their, their religious freedom is what they hide behind, but it comes back to the comment I made. Religion is your motivation, but when it comes to court and evidence, that motivation turns into what you actually do, and that's your intent. Did you intend to... Uh, berate this mm. person. Doesn't matter if it's because of religion. It's did you intend mm. to berate them? And the answer is always yes. And that's yeah. that's where their case falls to bits because in the employment court situation, doesn't matter what your motivation is. It's what you do and what the intention is of what you do. And that's mm. what's caught them fair square in this judgment. They have to now face up to what is the intention of what they actually do. And that was laid out clearly in what we believe, and actually in Howard Temple's um, evidence with yeah, you. Yeah. He said, yeah, basically we're, in the, as far as education goes, we are training people and we want them to stay here. And he said, and we'll, yeah. we'll do whatever we can to keep them here. And he just said it like there was nothing wrong with it. And I agree with you. He, these guys believe their own ideology. Um, yeah. And that's where you get danger. You get fanatics. And then they breed the second generation of fanatic and a third generation who knows nothing else. Um, so that's where our concern is about the community. Well, Up at 550 people breeding at the rate they do, this is a dangerous ideology. And they're on the fourth generation. They are on the fourth. Yeah, I think um, Gloryvale had this um, great defence that um, they didn't believe in employment relationships, that it somehow went against their religious beliefs. And yet I couldn't fathom it because it didn't make sense because they – they have had in their past a lot of different employment relationships within Gloraval. There are times where everyone got told, you're, you're, you're partners now, or you're, you're self-employed, or you're this, or now you're employed. That, that just didn't hold water. And then they said the judge cottoned on, and she basically said in her judgment, you know, I don't think it's really about the incompatibility with their religious beliefs. I think their argument is they aren't sure where to find the finances to be able to run a new system based on, on the employment concept. But then she said, in any event, it's notable that the evidence before the court of the community's finances, including its extensive acquisition of additional property, does not sit well with a claimed lack of capacity to pay. Well, Any thoughts just, on that? That's just the straight reality of the place. They live on working for families. That's what feeds and clothes them. The rest of the money, in fact, some of working for families goes back into acquiring properties. All the profit from all the businesses, yeah, they pay tax on it, but they have to have income to get working for families. And uh, mm -hmm. the rest of it just simply goes into buying properties. And uh, that um, Mount Brunner Station, whatever it's yeah. called, Lake Mount Brunner Station, um, they paid off a huge amount of money in a very short period of time. And they didn't have money for dentists. They didn't have money for what I'd call decent food. Mm -hmm. They didn't have money for anything other than these uniforms they wear, which uh, are a basically very cheap material. 
they just don't spend money on their people. No, doctors, um, healthcare, you're right, um, and, but neither do the people living there expect that because they're second, third generation, and this is the issue. And now you've got this revival of, hey, we've got Lake Brunner, this is the new project, the new utopia. Things yeah. are going to be better at that community. We're sort of, If we have to cut free from the Glorva one and have 100 loyal fanatic followers secluded away in Brunner, hey, hey, we'll forget about the past of Glorival. They just don't realise they're taking with them their same beliefs, their same culture, their same problems. We're going to just have a rinse and repeat in 20 years, 10 yeah, Liz, years, five you know, years. When they started out, you know, they families did actually have their own money and then they would bring it. And then, of course, they moved to, well, that didn't really work because obviously not everybody was handing everything in. So they took direct control of that money and... And in the, I guess also in the beginning, it was seen as a, a some sort of sacrificial giving. Uh, we've got this utopian ideal. We're going to build this community. Let's all sacrifice our, you know, a high standard of living or even a decent standard of living and give this money in. But Glorival realised, actually, we could use this as a control device, and that's exactly what they've done. They've kept it because it's probably one of, you know, it's an effective control device for them. Definitely. And more than that, I mean, it's okay for adults to enter into those sorts of arrangements if they like. But what they've done is they've they've bred children deliberately to grow the community, to give it a basis for the labour. It was always based on young people's labour. That was not a new um, a, a new concept that they just started in the last few years. This is a long-term track record. Yeah, but we, we didn't put this into evidence, but it came very clear from some of the witnesses that Hopeful Christian, the founder, realised in the past he'd built things and everybody else stole it off him. So this time he decided no one's going to steal it off him. He was going to be totally in control of it. And he really got kicked out of the Rangiura church, which he felt he had built up. And uh, he was kicked out with nothing. So this time round he was going to make sure he controlled and he has controlled everything for the rest of his life. He has. Um, there's no doubt that, you know, a lot of people ask me, what do you think hopeful Christian's, you know, vision was at the beginning, was it good? And then it went bad. And it's it's such a difficult um, answer to give because you like to A, think the best of people and B, no one will start a group like Glorival. They don't start where this has ended. They start early on, but actually there were indicators very early on of power and control. And so that's probably the answer. I don't think it really started that well. But the people joining had great intentions, but the person running it, I think there, were, there was clearly an issue. It's what Dennis said. It started bad. It had the deceit of making yeah. people think it was wonderful utopian. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It continued bad. It mm-hmm. actually got worse and mm-hmm. worse, and it will still get worse because that's the inevitability of depriving people of worldly knowledge. So well, where do we go? Oh, Dennis. Yeah, there's, there's an aspect there, Liz, that you need to factor in that Hopeful is the author of what we believe. You take the judge's comments about what we believe. You look, you read through what we believe, and it's horrific. Mm-hmm. There's one section there in particular that I find totally abhorrent. But it's what's, I'll come back to my earlier comments. What you see is not what you get, it's a facade. And we actually saw that played out in the courtroom. The whole country mm-hmm. saw it. Mm-hmm. Gloria Vale said they couldn't afford their lawyers. Oh. So they represented themselves for half the trial. And then right at the end, hello, 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 up pops a lawyer who has actually been there in the background all the time. And unfortunately, it's post the trial. But in that BNZ litigation, 
I saw in the media that the BNZ is holding $9 million cash of Gloryvale. They had heaps and they still have heaps of money built on the back of these people in Gloryvale who do not know any different and just keep slaving away as they've done the whole time they've been there since birth. And they're claiming that's in the trust, the charitable trust, which, of course, I've got a huge issue with the charity services. But anyway, um, so they're saying it's in this trust and actually we can't you can't use it. We can't spend it. And it's disturbing uh, because if that's the case, then how did they allow that money to get into that trust and that trust to get developed? Because the people in Gloraville believed it was being held for them and their benefit and their use and whenever they needed it. So there's a problem. Uh, a number two problem, obviously, they've got charitable status, so I have, I have big issues around that. I remember the charity services telling us when we gave them complaints, these are the tragic stories you're giving me about individuals, but they seem to be one-off isolated incidents. And I'm like, we're giving you like six of the same. You, you've got to you know, extrapolate this out. Anyway, so back to that concept about the charity services. The charity services have got this $9 million, there's money in their charitable trust, can't be used apparently. And so it seems absurd. The judge actually recognises that all their structures appear to all just be feeding into this bigger concept. It's the servants and shepherds that control everything. They've given effect to things with the charitable trust and a partnership and people signing declarations and vows and commitments. But actually, it's an all-in community. The money's all-in. It's a common purse concept, and it's gone very wrong. Yeah, that, that's for another court another day. That's part of mm. the trust case because this judge can only deal with are they, mm. aren't they employees. She can't even say are they, aren't they in servitude or slaves. No. So the only order she could give us we got, which is that they're in an employment relationship and then we go on to the consequences from there. That's another question for another day and we will be tracking it. Yeah, she did actually, and one of the, let's um, just head for a wee wrap up, but she did make a, a comment that it's very clear that the power and authority structures um, begin from on high and authority is sort of disseminated um, through the various leadership structures. So she has been able to see that, but I'm guessing she wants to be a little bit careful that um, there's not a big muddle up at the end with an incorrect designation of who the employer might be that Gorovar is able to wriggle out of and somehow say, well, that group doesn't have any money and can't make any recompense. Yeah, um, she, she's got... She's reserved around that point, and yeah. we'll have another hearing on that in a few months' time. Yeah, and I think it's important to state that the motive of the plaintiffs in doing this was quite powerful. It wasn't their ability to line their pockets with money in this case. I've, I've, I know these people, and their heart is that life is better for their family still inside Gloravale. And I think that's the question of where to next comes to that, doesn't it? How can these court cases work to improve life for those people born into this community. It's a government department doing its job, but we can't talk about that because we're suing them still. <laughs> Definitely. All right, well, we have a little um, last comment to me made there. This case was really high profile. It was 10-week hearing. It was spread across seven-month period. Every media outlet in town again reporting daily, a flurry of news activity. Were you expecting that? And what were you hoping for? Start with Steve and wake up. <laughs> I'm the junior genius. What are you hoping for there, Steve? Oh, well, I mean, Gloraville has always been a, a hot-button topic in New Zealand, you know, ever since that television series 
however many years ago, putting this whitewashed utopian, you know, family camp place that we could all go and join. Uh, it always captivated the imagination of New Zealanders. Um, but none of that, well, for me, was the reason to become involved. It was there was there was a wrong here, and it needed to be put right. Mm. Yeah, Dennis, what do you feel about that? Oh, I'd endorse Steve's uh, comments wholeheartedly. And the other thing is that New Zealand has and still is looking at Gloryvale as six o'clock news entertainment. It's mm. not that. It's fellow Kiwis in servitude, living a life of hell, and something has to be done to stop it. Mm. Final thoughts there, Brian? It's just a horrific factual situation in a courtroom and for me it always comes back to the vision of those little four five six year olds running around in their blue uniforms and the fact they have no future mm. at all yeah yeah well i want to thank you all for your time today not just for the chat but actually for the years of tireless work uh, that you've done in advocating for levers it's been a real road to leavers from a place where they've left and then they're comforted enough to talk to strangers about these issues and to, to go public. It's actually quite astounding that so many plaintiffs and witnesses were willing to come forward on, on the cases and I know it's because they feel confident in your hands. If you'd like to know more about the Employment Court ruling, our listeners can head to the Gloraval Leavers Support Trust website. We've got a tab there called Legal. There's a bit of a background there about the employment cases, where they're going, where they've come from. Wow, that was a really interesting conversation you had with your team of lawyers, Liz. I think they did such a marvellous job of highlighting some of the frustrations, the injustices and the deep wrongness of the fight your team has has before you. So you've won this battle, but there are still Mm. so many ahead of you before you can say you've truly won. Gloryvale are not going to give up on those people. They're not going to roll over and admit what they're doing and have done they're not going to go down without a very big fight. Mm, yeah, I agree. And they've already indicated that you know they plan to appeal. So I think that is disturbing. Um, yeah, it is disturbing. I think it actually someone in Gloraville said, "Wow, that just shows they really actually don't care about the people here." Mm. And um, that person was quite moved and um, yeah, concerned about what it looks like to everyone else to have an appeal because can you just discard all the evidence that was given in court and say it's not true it's it's not it's not Mm. didn't happen that that, that's not right or true and so it does uh, leave a big question mark um over the group and I think something that really yeah strikes home is what Brian said about there are still little girls growing up inside Gloravale you know and the reality is you know from our perspective growing up with you know, very little hope of a future. Now, Gloraval will disagree with that. They'll say they do have a future. It's just a, it's a different future, and they believe it's the right mm, future. Mm. But I think the young people themselves are speaking, and they're leaving, and they'll continue to leave. And the more young ones that leave, the more they realise mm. there's no future because there are less marriageable partners for mm. them. So actually, you know, their future really is. Um, it does hang people. on the balance of their young people. Mm. Yeah, the young people not being willing to sign up to that that life, that futureless life. And this is it. 
the original people who came signed up and they believed they were coming to something good, okay? Mm. And so then they find themselves trapped in a coercion, control, undue influence and some leave but some didn't. And then you have their children born there. Mm. So these people don't have a prior life to compare to or prior family that they could reach out to if they did sort of choose to go. And now you've got third generation. Mm. And so you can start to see, and actually fourth now, and so you can start to see a third and a fourth generation beginning to think, I didn't actually ever sign up to this. I was just born into this. Mm. And so I think it's your third generation that are going to put their skates on um, mm. and and head right out of there. Yeah, one part of the interview that um, really struck home with was me when, when I th- was it Dennis, one of them, I'm not sure, who was talking about the comments of the, about the bureaucrats refusing to see. Was it Dennis who said mm-hmm. that? Yeah, I think it was. Um, yep. And he was saying the bureaucrats, who are the ones who actually have the power to do something, going in <laughs> yeah. there and not seeing, the general public mm-hmm. also not wanting to see, and mm-hmm. the victims themselves, because of how sheltered their lives are, being unable to see. Mm. And... <sighs> No one being willing to see, to join the dots, to bring it all together. Unspeakable things happen, and there's an un- a universal desire to see no evil. It's part of mm. human to shy away from atrocities. We don't want to <laughs> yes. see. We don't want to hear. But by not seeing and not hearing, not only do we keep going every day and living with hope, but we abandon uh, the vulnerable amongst us. We make mm-hmm. what um, they're going through invisible uh, and unspeakable and, unvis- and invisible. So it can't be seen and it can't be spoken and therefore it can't mm. be heard. So oh, when we refuse yeah. to see and hear, we abandon them. We mm. decide we'll not learn and nor will we safeguard to avoid future victims. Oh, yeah, that's powerful. And a lever... Um, was just having a message exchange with me and wrote this most powerful thing about some things happening at Gloryvale. Deep down, we all felt off about it, but we didn't have the language or knowledge or autonomy to put the feelings in the right place. Mm. So the girls were often left confused and guilty, but unable to even name those feelings and why. Mm. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Well, you need words, don't you? You need words that didn't have the language. And so, of course, they felt funny about all of this employment stuff and what was happening in their lives, but it's not till they can get the standard from the outside and say, did you know we've got employment law and protections? And they look at you wide open. No. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are foreign concepts. I recall in that court case sitting there while the lawyers were questioning Gloria Vale current witnesses saying things like, well, would the whole community crash and burn if, you know, people got morning tea breaks, for example. They said, well, no, what we already do. Well, would it crash and burn if, you know, you got um, four weeks holiday a year? Well, some of them said, well, we couldn't do that. We couldn't keep going. But, you know, they, they knew what four weeks holiday sort of meant. They do have a week's vacation every year. Most critical question was, would your community crash and burn if you as a woman had a year's maternity leave? And different ones said, what's that? You know, the concept of being paid and having time off and being with your baby. So Mm. when you don't know that 
you don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. And so you've got no language, of course, to explain why you didn't feel okay about putting your baby in childcare at two weeks old and that you actually wanted to be with them. You haven't got language of bonding and attachment mm-hmm. and all those other parental or mothering things that we would out here. Mm-hmm. So and when you don't, language. yeah, if you don't have the language, you can't think of it and you can't describe it and you can't express right. it, you can't see it. You know, like you can't it's fundamental for yourself. Yeah, it's fundamental, isn't it? Um, it is. Yeah. The other thing that's popped up this week that's really topical is the um, release from the um, the Abuse and Care Royal Commission of Inquiry mm. um, finding about the Christchurch Maryland School, which was run by the Order of the, Saint, of the Brothers of St. John of God, and what they, mm. if they've, they've investigated this organisation that um, was operating, uh, oh, I think the 50s to the 80s, something like that. It's, yeah. it's historical. And they Tragic. found all of these awful, appalling um, uh, systemic abuse occurring there. Um, one in five of the boys mm. who attended the school reported abuse in the school's care. Uh, how they suspect that the number's much higher than that. There would be, because if that's the reporting level, it'd yeah, be yeah. bottom dollar, it's a lot and, higher than that. And of the 37 brothers in the order who ministered, um, 21 had allegations of some cool. form of abuse during the time yeah. the school was open. Um, only mm. one person was convicted. So it's like this is all historical and it's only coming out mm. now. And it's like mm. it, it's phenomenal what we hear and what we discover when we see the truth. But it's all... Mm. It's all awful, and mm. we don't. It's awful to see, and it's awful to to dig into, and it's awful to look at. But as long as we're unwilling to look at these things, nothing can change, and nothing will. And I think hearing about this new school, this new information to me, Maryland School, I need to know that because I need this to be different mm. for future generations of children going into the school system. Um. There's a a fantastic quote that I've been ruminating on in the last week or two by Judith Lewis-Herman. She's a a psychiatrist, I think, in in America. I'm not sure, though. She's written in this book called Trauma and Recovery, The Aftermath of Violence from Domestic Abuser to Political Terror. This is what she's written. To study psychological trauma is to come face-to-face, both with human vulnerability in the natural world and for the capacity for evil in human nature. To study psychological trauma means bearing witness to horrible events. When the events are natural disasters or acts of God, those who bear witness sympathise readily with the victim. But when the traumatic events are of human design, those who bear witness are caught in the conflict between victim and perpetrator. It is morally impossible to remain neutral in this conflict. It's very tempting to take the side of the perpetrator. All the perpetrator asks is the bystander do nothing. He Mm. appeals to the universal desire to see, hear, and speak no evil. The victim, on the contrary, asks the bystander to share the burden of the pain. The victim demands action, engagement, and remembering. Oh, that's powerful. It is morally impossible to remain neutral in this conflict. And you know what? I'm going to say it. I'm, I'm not remaining neutral yeah the lawyers aren't remaining neutral the levers aren't remaining neutral the supporters have decided we're not it's time to not we're remain not remaining neutral. Neu- i'm not because, remaining neutral no because what why sh- why should we remain mm. neutral mm-hmm. i cannot condone what has happened mm-hmm. and you know what at the end of the day i'm less than interested in what they say their motivation was 
they say what their motivation was, you know, love and, you know, working together, it's a good thing. But actually the reality is they exploited people for their labour. Mm-hmm. They treated people badly. They put children in dangerous situations, doing adults' jobs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then they never let the kids grow up into adulthood. And so you've got adults in there who have been left sort of infantilized. And that's a word that's come from a lever. And so, you know, you're really looking at there's no point standing by mm-hmm. neutrally. There is, there is no, no neutral neutrality where there's oppression. Mm, exactly. Um, I, I, think no, I, read- I feel like this. I feel like this judgment has, you know, yeah. pulled that out of the woodwork. And there's going to be more to come. There's going to be more to come. And um, yeah, I I read somewhere this week um, that the the bystander uh, when someone is drowning, who watches someone drowning, is not very different from the person who puts the victim's head under the water. Interesting. Yes, actually, I I put that meme on our Facebook page. Had a little bit of kickback from someone and the, the <laughs> point of the story was um actually yeah you're right if the bystander has the capacity to do something anything whether it's throwing the ring whatever um, that, that they need to throw the ring if that's all they can do then they still have a duty and a responsibility to throw the ring yeah you know yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. I mean I turn another eye I'm off, turn the blind I'm eye. coming from the place of being a child at a community where children were sexually abused and where many people did nothing. So that's that's my uh, unequivocable yeah. position. So I feel a strong sense of moral outrage towards bystanders mm. in the situation. However, I have to acknowledge that in many there's many injustices in the world and I'm a bystander in many situations. Mm. So I guess, you know, um, I guess in this case we're calling for people to take notice of, of, of this situation and, and do what yeah. they can. That's but, right. Yeah. But I think we maybe we need to wrap up um, mm. for the day. It's been a fascinating uh, conversation, and I, I think people are going to enjoy this one. Well, thanks, fellow travellers, for joining us today in this really special bonus episode. Liz, it's been such a treat to hear from the fabulous team of dedicated lawyers for the glory of our levers and to hear some of the inside information about what it was like to be involved in the case. We hope there is something in today's episode that might help you to cult-proof your life. Join us for next week for our next show. It's coming around a bit faster this time when we'll have a chat about what makes a cult a cult. Is it just thinking and believing some really weird stuff or is it there a bit more to it than that? If you've enjoyed today's episode, please keep listening to more episodes of Cult Chat on Plains FM. If podcasts are more your thing, then consider listening and subscribing to Cult Chat on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can find additional information about this episode on the show notes on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and further information about the show on our Facebook page, Cult Chat. Please tell your friends about the show, share the links, leave a review on our Facebook page or on the podcast platforms so our message can spread further through the cultiverse. It's been lovely being with you today. Over and out. Kakite. If anything in today's episode was upsetting for you and you'd like to talk to somebody, free call or text 1737 for support from a trained counsellor. Or visit the resources section on the New Zealand Olive Leaf Network website for a range of resources that might be of interest and use to you. 
The views, thoughts and opinions expressed in this podcast are the speakers alone and Cult Chat does not necessarily share or endorse them. Mm-hmm.